So if you're joining us uh, online through the camera, if you're joining us here today, I'm so glad that you're here. If you're new here for the first time, uh, welcome to our church. Welcome to our family conversations this morning. Um, welcome to a place where we just try to be as open and honest about who we are as a church, who we are as a people, and how we can all grow together in our faith for our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself declared that where two or more are gathered together, that he would be in their midst. And I'm thankful that, you know, we don't just come and gather together as a bunch of people and our God is distant someplace. I'm thankful that when we come together as a people, that Jesus promises that he will show his presence, that he will be present with us. And so today I want us to enter into the rest of our conversations with a spirit of recognition that Christ is among us and that Christ is ready to teach us and Christ is ready to walk with us. And Christ is here to make a difference in our lives. And so we welcome uh, his presence with us. This week we're continuing in our celebration of uh, the most significant event in all of human history. It is the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's been said before, and I believe it bears repeating over and over again, that this greatest act of love ever displayed by anyone to any one other has the ability, has the power to reassure us that we can have our sins forgiven, that we can be given new life. You see, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. And this morning, we continue in our teaching that we have called Raised to Love, where we're looking at this idea that as followers of Jesus Christ, that we, by his death, by his resurrection, we, if we've chosen to follow him, have been raised to a new life. And in this new life that we find in Christ, we are compelled to show his love. You see, because of Jesus, you and I, we've been made new. We ourselves have been raised to love. His act of love should change everything about how we love. We started off this series a couple weeks ago with this idea that his act of love changes how we love our families. Last week, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we talked about how his act of love changes how we love the world. And I don't know about you, but that message for me Last week could not have come at a more perfect time. Like I just got through telling you guys, we were vandalized Easter morning. Spray-painted windows, walls, concrete, walkways. It was disturbing. It was frustrating. It was 5.30 in the morning when I got the phone call. <laughs> no fun. Immediately, I am, you've got to be kidding me, of all the mornings, Easter morning. And I immediately kicked into fix-it mode, like, okay, what's got to get done? What has to happen, right? Get up, get dressed, brush your teeth, right? You know, put some deodorant on, make sure you smell okay, right? The shirt is horribly wrinkled. Barb, can you iron this shirt, bring it to church when you come? I got to go. It's text the uh, chairman of the elders, and he didn't answer his phone, so I'm sorry, Scott, but I had to make that call. I got you out of bed. Forgive me for that, right? It's make sure that the police have been called. And as I'm driving here to church, it's about a 22-minute drive from my house, you know, I'm like, I'll, I'll fix it, right? Fix it mode, fix it mode, fix it mode. What do we got to do? What do we got to do? It's all task, right? And it's about the time I'm coming up Harford Road, and I can drive Harford Road, and I can tell you the exact spot where I was at, where I began to think about the person who had done this. 
the person who had done this, these things. And, and I was thinking, who would have done this? Who could have done this? Why would they have done such a thing? And at the very moment, I could have let my emotions go crazy. I could have let my natural feelings take over, right? But instead, and I'm not patting myself on the back because it was such a moment of clarity for me, and I'm so like, glad that it happened. Instead of being angry, I chose to pray for that person. I remembered the love that Jesus had shown me and shown you while we were at our worst and reminded me to not only choose to love, but to pray for whoever was responsible for the damage. And I remembered that Jesus died on the cross for that person or persons just as he died on the cross for me and for you. And it made it a whole lot easier to pray for that person instead of being angry at them. Easter morning gave us good cause to look back 2,000 years ago when the crowds, the teachers, the Jews, the religious leaders, the courts, the soldiers, when everybody turned against Jesus, where the lashes were given, where the crown of thorns was placed on his head, where the nails were driven into his hands and into his feet, and he hung on a cross, when death came, when Satan thought that his schemes to stop Jesus, he thought that his schemes could stop his followers, he thought his schemes could stop the church. But he did not win that day. You see, Jesus did not stay in the grave. Satan could not keep him in the grave. And when I saw the graffiti on our walls that morning, and I saw that they were a reflection of a heart that had been turned and was controlled by the devil himself. When that person who did damage to our buildings that Easter morning thought that somehow he could stop Jesus, somehow he could stop the church, somehow he could stop us followers from gathering together and worshiping the risen Savior, he did not win. See, 2,000 years ago on that first Easter, because of the power of the resurrected Christ, Satan did not win. And on Easter Sunday, 2022, Satan did not win. And early in the morning, Saturday, this week, Satan did not win either. You know, Jesus' example, by his love, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, if we let it, it will change everything. It'll change everything. This week, we're going to be talking about how his act of love changes how we love the church. His example of love by his life and now by his death and by his resurrection should change not only how we see the church, but it should change how we love the church. So let's talk for a little while about the church. Jesus lived a perfect life, did three years of public ministry, ending in a death, ending in his burial, ending in his resurrection, which all of us as believers, we celebrate all year long, right? We especially make emphasis on it, you know, on Easter Sunday. But think about that Easter Sunday, that very first weekend, those disciples, their hopes and their dreams and their lives have been crushed and dashed because of what had taken place on the cross, but the resurrection brought to them new life. It brought to them new hope. 
And it ushered in the next part of Jesus' plan for taking his good news of his salvation to the entire world, which was the establishment of his church, of which we are still a part. Friends, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we should love his church because Jesus loved his church. So let's keep talking about the church. You know, when I speak about the church, I'm not talking about Fort Christian Church or some other church specifically. Uh, I mean, all the things that we're talking about here might just apply here. But when we talk about the church, we're talking about the church universal. We're talking about the worldwide church. We're talking about the church not only of today, but the church of tomorrow. But if we're truly going to love the church, if we are truly going to love the church, we have to be reminded of whose church is it? Whose church is it? It's basic. Let's get there. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? We're going to stop there for a second. Son of man was a title that Jesus gave himself often. Now, at first glance, it certainly reflects his, his humility and his humanity, right? Son of man, not son of God there, it's son of man. But on the surface, though, it reflects these things. But if you were a Jew, especially a devout Jew, a follower of the law of Moses, you know, you had all these uh, Old Testament books, the book of Daniel, you'd be familiar with the prophets. Daniel himself talked about one who would come. Jan Daniel, a prophet in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before, talked about a Savior that would come, the Son of Man who would come. And listen to what he had to say about him. Daniel said that the Son of Man was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. He said that his rule would be eternal. It would never end. His kingdom would never be destroyed. Let's keep those words in mind as we read this interaction that takes place here uh, in this region of Caesarea Philippi. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The words of Peter, you're the Messiah, right? You're the chosen one. You're the anointed one. You're the promised one. You're the deliverer one. And here in this very seemingly simple conversation, two amazing things take place. First, Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, which doesn't seem very significant. Is that Peter means a stone. It's like a smaller piece of rock broken off of a larger rock. It's a smaller piece of stone. And although we know about Peter's life, or perhaps we know about Peter's life, he was full of missteps. 
It was full of blunders, verbal blunders. And he said things, he spurted things out of his mouth. He did things impulsively. He didn't look like a rock at all. But we know from reading that later on, Peter became a great leader in the church and his ministry and his life was characterized by being a rock. Peter was a rock. The second thing in this dialogue that I think was very profound is that Jesus made a declaration about his church. Jesus made a declaration about his church. Now, the English is a little bit confusing here. English is a confusing language. English is a language where it seems to place my love for my wife and my love for olives on a very equal ground, right? They're not the same, but love kind of sounds that way. This word we have in English for rock kind of sounds the same as well. See, it reads as if Peter is the rock and then he is also the rock that the church gets built on. And unfortunately, many people have believed that the church is built on Peter. It was built on Peter because of this wording. But when we read it and we understand Peter and not any other good person ever was adequate to build the church on. He was not the foundation for the church. He was just a little rock. He was just a little rock. What Jesus was saying is that the church is built upon the one whom Peter confessed. It was built on the solid foundational rock solid truth of Peter's declaration. The statement of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. You're the Messiah Peter said, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, upon this rock, upon this solid foundation, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, has these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, because of God's grace to me, I've laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. You see, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. We got a lot of builders in this church. And you guys understand the value and the necessity of the right foundation, the solid foundation. And the church of Jesus was never to be built on a single person. Jesus' church is not built by or on any man. You see, a church that is a solid foundation, a church that is built on Jesus, the rock, cannot be conquered, cannot be overcome, even by the powers of hell itself, because it's his church. You know, we also need to recognize as we're talking about the church, that before we can truly love the church, we need to be reminded that the church is not a building. The church is not a building. It never has been. It never will be and probably never should have been. But that's kind of what we've gotten used to. You know, bad habits are hard to break. Now think about it. What do we do on Sunday mornings? We go to church, right? If Nick's kids say, Dad, where do you work? He says, I work at the church. When someone asks about our church, it's usually a physical location. Oh, it's in Kingsville. It's on Sunshine Avenue. Well, where do you go to church? Oh, Fort Christian, right? What's the name of your church? It's all about a building. Maybe when you were a kid, you learned this. We're going to do a little finger exercise here, right? So take your hands. 
should take your fingers and interlock them like this. Go ahead, do it, do it, do it. Lock, lock them in here. Okay. I don't know if you guys remember this or not. Some of you do. I know you did like the 9 o'clock service. Do like everybody knew this, right? You know, here's the church. Boom. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. And here's all the people. All right. How many of you guys learned that as a kid growing up? Okay, good. Guess what? Y'all were taught wrong. They got it wrong. Think about it. This is a building. These are the people. This is the church. These are the church. The building's just a structure. The church is the people. Look around you. This thing, it's a building. This is the church. The church is the people. It's not a destination. It's not a place. When the Bible was written in its original Greek form, the word we have translated church was ekklesia. An ecclesia doesn't mean a building set apart for religious stuff. Ecclesia doesn't mean a place. It's not a destination. Ecclesia means an assembly, a gathering. Not a location, but people. It's not even necessarily a religious word or a Christian word. Ecclesia just meant an assembly. But when Jesus talked about the ecclesia, and when the early church leaders talked about the ecclesia, when the apostles spoke of the ecclesia, it was known and understood that they were referencing this assembly that Jesus started, this assembly that was built on Jesus, built on the foundation of Jesus, the assembly of the Lord. On this rock, Jesus said, I will build my assembly. I'll build my gathering. I'll build my congregation. Back in the 1500s, when Tyndall published the Bible in English, he took the Greek word and he translated it into congregation. And that was a good translation. And I'm not sure why, but about 100 years after he did that, someone kicked congregation out of the Bible and they stuck church back in there. And church is just basically, it is a root, rooted in an English or German word that meant of the Lord. So it was like an assembly of the Lord, a gathering of the Lord, a congregation of the Lord. And for some reason, they kicked that whole assembly and gathering and congregation out and just left of the Lord. And it is of the Lord, so I'm okay with that. And we're used to saying church, so we're going to keep calling it church. But man, I wish it was assembly. Because assembly makes it feel like it's all people. And church, far too many times, makes it feel just like a building. So let's be reminded, though, that Jesus' church is not a building. Jesus' church is not a building. And we need to remember that Jesus has called us to love the people that are his church, not a building, not a structure, not a spray paint magnet. See, before we could truly love the church, we also need to be reminded that Jesus' church is not perfect. Jesus' church isn't perfect. And let's be honest, throughout the centuries, even to modern day, the church always hasn't had the greatest of reputations. The church should be the place that is known to be the best demonstration of the love of Jesus Christ ever. But far too often, the church gets known for the things that we are against instead of being for the people that Jesus died on the cross for. 
We're not always very loving. We haven't lived up well to the name and the reputation of Jesus. Ah, throughout the church there's been scandal and embezzlement and there's been failed and fallen church leaders. The the church has been ripe with hypocrisy, done cover-ups. Friends, the failure of the church has caused many people to discount it, to disregard it, to disrespect it. But in all of its brokenness, Jesus calls us to love his church. In fact, Jesus' love is demonstrated through his death and his resurrection should change how we see the church and it should change how we love his church. The church of Jesus Christ isn't perfect, but she's still his bride. So let's be careful how we love the church. Let's be careful sometimes how hard we are on the church. Can you imagine going to a wedding, showing up, being there and saying, man, I love that groom, but I hate that bride. That's tough. Now, I've been married almost 40 years, and my wife, Barb, she certainly has her flaws. Although for the life of me, I can't think of a single one of them. But the reality is, if you tell me that you love me, but you don't love my wife, we might have some issues, right? Don't say you love me if you don't love my wife. You can love my wife and not love me. I'll be okay with that. But don't tell me you love me and not love my wife, right? That's the way it works. Jesus loves his bride. He died for her. A few years ago, recording artist Lecrae in his song called The Bride sang these lyrics. Yeah, she may look gritty. When her man come back, she's going to look real pretty. She the church. You might see her acting crazy, but be patient with her, though, because she's still God's baby. She the church. Now, that might not be how most of us would articulate that, but that point is amazing. The church is a mess. But Jesus died on the cross for her. He still loves for her. And Jesus did not call us to love his church because she is perfect. He called us to love the church because his love for us is perfect. And his love for her, the church, is perfect. The book of Acts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in our New Testament. It's a story of the early church. Recordings of the early church. It's raw, it's gritty, it's dirty. But I love the part in the very very beginning, Acts chapter 4, where we have this picture of what the early church started out to be. It says this in starting at verse 32. It says, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything that they had. And the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Now, I love these churches, or these verses, and I love leaning into these verses because they paint such a beautiful picture of what the church could be like, of what the community and the unity and the harmony of the early church could be. And what a great example for us to emulate, for us to follow. But if we read further in the book of Acts, we realize it may have started this way, but it didn't stay this way. 
Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied about how much money they'd sold their house for, and they said they were giving it all to the church, and they got in some really bad trouble. You're welcome to read that on your own. Acts chapter 6, we read about widows being neglected, and there were grumblings and discontent. Acts chapter 8, Simon, who used to be a sorcerer, became a convert to Christianity, and then he went on a power trip. Acts chapter 9, the church was full of fear and was full of mistrust. Acts chapter 11, there was division and there was undue uh, criticism. In Acts chapter 15, the leaders of the church, there was a rift among them, so much so that it nearly split the church. Ouch, that's tough. And we're not much different today. We're not much different today. We're just a bunch of imperfect people chasing after a perfect God. And though we don't need to be reminded of it, for the sake of you note takers, write this down. Although Jesus is perfect, Jesus' church is not perfect. Jesus' church is not perfect. Yet, my friends, I want to tell you that it is through the church that the good news of Jesus will be taken to the entire world. It is through the imperfect people that make up the church it is through the imperfect people that love the church, that love it in spite of its frustrations, that love it in spite of its failures, that Jesus' great commission to go into all the world, it is through the church that that will be carried out. And it's through the church that individual lives will be changed and that families will be changed and that this world will be changed. And it's because of the example of his love set by his life and now by his death and his resurrection that should change how we see the church. It should change how we love the church. And so how do we do it? How do we start making some steps to love the church like Jesus loved? How do we demonstrate the love of Jesus to those who are part of the church? How do we demonstrate to the world that Jesus is a part of the church because of the way that we love within the church. To borrow a phrase from Andy Stanley, a popular preacher and, and speaker, he says we should out one another, one another. We should strive to out one another, one another. Let me explain. Over 100 times in the New Testament part of our Bibles, there's this Greek word called alelon. It's not called alelon. It is alelon, right? Alelon. And it is this, it's from where we get this phrase to, to one another. Alelon, one another. Alelon, one another, right? 59 times this word is used regarding how we should be treating one another in the church. 59 times alelon, how we treat one another another. And I believe that if put into practice these one another's, and I believe that if we will continually try to out one another, one another, it will change how we love the church, and the church's impact on the world will be changed as well. When the world sees us out loving one another, out caring for one another, out one anothering one another, it will make a difference on the people who we do life with, who see us in action. And there's lots of ways that we can one another, but I'm going to give you five key one another ways, right? First one is we need to one another or out one another through service. We need to out one another through humility. We need to out one another, one another through unity. We need to out one another through uh, the idea of encouragement. And we need to out one another through love. Here's some examples. 
First, we have to out one, out one another, one another through service. Galatians chapter 6, and there's many other verses that talk about serving one another. But Galatians 6 says, share each other's burdens, and in the same way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. Jesus himself didn't come to be served. Jesus came to serve us. To give his life as a ransom for many. And so if we, uh, because of Jesus' demonstration of service to, what, to us, because of his example and his demonstration of service to us, we need to be asking ourselves, who and how am I serving one another in the church? Who and how am I serving one another in Jesus' church? I think we also have to out one another, one another through this act of humility, through this idea of humility. Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's take that lower position. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, Jesus himself humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And since Jesus demonstrated his great love through his humility, we need to ask ourselves, are there places and areas where my pride is keeping me from fully loving Jesus' church? See, we also have to out one another, uh, out, out one another, one another through the idea of unity. First uh, Corinthians chapter uh, 10, I'm sorry, First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul's writing, he says, I appeal to you. Like I beg you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus, live in harmony with one another. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Most of us are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, but we're not all familiar with the prayer that the Lord prayed for us. There was a time where he was praying for those closest to him, but he also prayed for those who would come to know him in the future. He prayed for those who were not yet followers of him. That's me and that's you. Jesus prayed for us. And do you know what he prayed for us for? He prayed that we would be united. He prayed for our unity. And when we choose to be united with his church, we are an answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed during his earthly ministry. And since he demonstrated this love by demonstrating unity, we got to ask ourselves, are there any ways or are there any places by my words, by my actions, or my attitudes that I am being divisive, that I am not promoting unity in Jesus' church? We also have to out one another, one another through encouragement. Through encouragement. Paul, again, writes to the church in, in 1 Thessalonians. Are you seeing a trend here? You know why Paul and Peter and James and Jude and John, do you know why they had to write so many letters that we have bound up in our New Testament? Because the church was messed up and they needed to be encouraged to know how do I love like Jesus? How do I love my family like Jesus? How do I love the world like Jesus? How do I love the church like Jesus? So he writes to the church in Thessalonica. It says, so encourage each other and build each other up. Just as you're already doing. Friends, since Jesus demonstrated his love by encouraging us, we need to ask ourselves, who in the church of Jesus, who in Jesus' church, and how in Jesus' church am I encouraging others? How am I one anothering others in this idea of encouragement? And lastly, we need to out one another through this idea 
of love, through the practice of love. John 13 records these words where Jesus says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. See, we are to love one another because our love for one another will show the world that we follow after Jesus, that we're a part of his church. And since Jesus demonstrated his love to us by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection, if we are truly raised to love, we need to ask ourselves, how am I loving Jesus' church? As we wrap up this morning, I just want to leave you with a couple of thoughts. I want to encourage you, I want to ask you, I want to challenge you. Will you love Jesus' bride? Will you choose to love his church through unity, through encouragement, through serving, through humility? Will you, in your effort to demonstrate love to his church, choose to out one another, one another? And will you allow your love shown to Jesus' church be the very thing that draws people to him? Will you choose to go and live your life knowing that you have been called, commissioned, that you have been raised to love? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that uh, you have equipped us, that you use broken and imperfect people, that you've called us because of your resurrection, because of your death on the cross, because of this great love that you displayed to us, to love in the same way that you do, that you've called us to love our families, you've called us to love the lost, to love the world, you've called us to love your imperfect bride, your imperfect church. Thank you for loving us in spite of our imperfections. Thank you that while we are still sinners, Jesus, you died on the cross for our sins. It's your name we pray. Amen.